Tell the people what you're here for. people what you're here for okay welcome to tim talks episode two the podcast where i have interesting conversations with interesting people uh to my left here is yusuf abdul fatah he's from fat from palestine he's a final year electronics and electrical engineering student at lee's university he's the secretary of the palestinian society group at the university and he plays five musical instruments yusuf it's great to have you here thank you for having me Tom. Uh, please may just, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself, about your personal story and how you came to be at Leeds University. Oh, well, that's a story. That's another story. That's an <laughs> interesting story. Leeds was just um, a happy coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, just doing my GCSEs and my levels, I didn't really know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. I mean, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to do physics, actually. That's an interesting story why I chose engineering. But uh, Leeds was one of those, like, it wasn't even a plan B or a C. It was just a... Why not? Last shot, a friend of mine told me, you know what, they got this course in Leeds. It's like a foundation course. And, yeah. you know, you come through it and do whatever course you want. And I was like, you know what, why not? Initially, I applied for physics. I went through UCAS and I got accepted in some universities um, here in the UK. And the reason why I applied to, you know, through UCAS to the UK is because I went to like a British curriculum school back home. In and it was kind of like, no, actually, I uh, went to school in Abu Dhabi, okay. in the UAE. Um, and it just seemed the natural thing to do. I did apply to more universities in different countries, but it's kind of been like, why, it's natural. You know, I did my yeah. GCSE my levels, it just seemed natural to come, come here, really. And, um, well, if I want to tell you more about myself, I guess it all comes back to Palestine and me being a Palestinian, because it literally, I can't, I can't stress how much it affects every detail of your life. So, you know, growing up, you know, I knew I was Palestinian, even though my family's been living all over the place. So I'll tell you, like, my... History from my grandfather's. Uh, okay, okay. So my dad's dad comes from a town called Yaffa. It's on the Mediterranean coast of Palestine. And in 1948, during the Nakba, he was basically him and his family were forced out yeah. by violence to leave, and they, and they fled to Jordan. For any uh, viewers who may not know what the Nakba is, could you just give your own personal yes. account of it? So the Nakba literally translates to the catastrophe. In Arabic, and it's the ethnic. It was the event of ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948 that started by the Zionist militias such as the Lehi, the Haganah, the Ergun, uh, to ethnically cleanse Palestine of its native inhabitants to make space to allow a new Jewish majority state to be established in the sta- in, in in Palestine's uh, pl- uh, place. And the Nakba consisted of like. Sp- the expulsion of around 750,000 Palestinians, the killings of a couple tens of thousands, and the ransacking and destruction of 530 villages. And the Nakba, we call it the Nakba, the catastrophe, was not just an event, it is ongoing till now. The effects are still felt, there are still house demolitions, Palestinians are still being kicked out uh, of the land, being stripped away of citizenship. Mm-hmm. So it's not an event, it's an ongoing thing. The Nakba is everywhere I go. Every time I get stopped, there's a checkpoint. Every time you know the the settlements are expanded, that we can still feel it. And even though people call it the Nakba, the catastrophe, a lot of people in Palestine now they call it. Well, they say it wasn't a catastrophe. Call it what it is. It's a crime, because okay. that implies there was a criminal who committed it. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what we've been trying to say. That's what we're trying to raise the light. And this Nakba changed the demographics of Palestine so much. And 
I've written a piece about the Nakba on the Leeds Human Rights Journal. Um, okay, yeah, well, I, have, I have a copy of that actually. Do you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I kind of just wrote about Western hypocrisy and how um, even Israel, the occupying force, mm-hmm. still hasn't recognized the Nakba, hasn't recognized what they did. And of course, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised because it was. I can't even put it in words, man. It was the most dehumanizing thing to ever happen to people. It's just. Okay. And, um, and so back to your back to your back to my grandparents. Well, yeah. both grandparents, um, both sides of the family. My let's talk about my father's side. So okay. both grandparents fled um, near the coastal towns. So Yaffa, my grandfather owned like a an orange farm. You could say yeah. he, he just had a small business, mm-hmm. and but they had to flee to Jordan, what is now Jordan. Yeah. Um, and my mom's side now live in the West Bank. Just on the northern tip of the West Bank. Do they still live there? Yeah, they do actually. Um, so as a result, it's been really weird. So my my father's side of the family has had a very interesting life. Well, after that, they were living in Jordan as refugees. They they wanted better life for themselves, so they went to Kuwait for a while. But then after the first Gulf War, you know, they had to flee back to Jordan. And I could go on for that Kuwait war because my yeah. my uncles and my dad have experienced some things. So my dad went to university in Kuwait, but then had to leave all that behind, travel by himself to Iraq, and he finished this, he had to restart his uh, university uh, degree in Iraq, okay. eventually got it. My, the rest of my family went back to Jordan, luckily enough, mm-hmm. we, uh, I was born in a town called Zarqa, which means the blue in Jordan, it's, um, it's called like one of the biggest refugee camps in Jordan, and um, I grew up in this little house on top of a hill, and I, didn't, I grew up there, but it wasn't really long. And then we moved to Abu Dhabi. We were always moving. That's that's what I remember about my, okay. uh, you know, between between the West Bank and Jordan. Yeah. My mom's family is between Jor- uh, West Bank, between Jordan, uh, Abu Dhabi, and this is where for me this is the part I'm still trying to get a hold of. It's yes, I'm Palestinian, as in all members of my family are Palestinian, yeah. but I have this like dual. Thing. I have a Palestinian citizenship, mm-hmm. so I can I'm a Palestinian citizen. I can live there. Yeah, but I also have the Jordanian one. And that's because of two different sides of my family, my mom's side and my dad's side. So when I'm in Jordan, my, my cousins on that side of the family tell me, wow, you're so lucky. You get to go back to the motherland. You get to see the beauty of Palestine, like well, what's left of it, you know, that's mm-hmm. the West Bank. And, and then when I go travel to the West Bank, which is you know, under military occupation right now, it's all the way around. They tell me, wow, you're so lucky. You get to leave. You get to leave, yeah. You get to travel the world. Yeah. You know, you, uh, you get to study abroad, mm. that kind of stuff. Because for them, it's so much, so hard. Yeah, Especially yeah. my cousins and my mom's family. So the family who live in farms, basically. Yeah. In little villages, in the, in the mountains, that kind of stuff. Uh, and they're trapped there, right? Then they're basically una- unable to leave that area or, in a lockdown. Some of my cousins have literally not, never left the village. And the only time they did leave was like to go to Jerusalem. But then you'd be denied. Because if you're, like, for example, I've only went to Jerusalem when I was four years old. Since then, I've, I'm not allowed to go. Because um, Israel annexed Jerusalem, they built a wall around it. Mm-hmm. It's just impossible for me to go, go there, yeah. or like anywhere in Israel proper. Uh, well, as in, you would be denied entry, or the entry system's just so bureaucratic, it'd basically be impossible? Well, both actually. Well, second mm-hmm. one, I'd say. But yeah. uh, it, the system has just exists there. For if, if you're a young male, yeah. between ages such and such, it's, it's almost like winning a lottery ticket. Mm-hmm. If you are a much, much older person, yeah. it's much easier. 
or if you're female, it's much easier because I guess they see you as less of a threat. It's all, it's all, it all comes back to this. You know, I, we don't we don't call it the separation rule. We call it the racist apartheid rule because that's okay. that's literally our reality right mm -hmm. now. And it's it's about control. It's about control of population. It's about control of minds and who can go in and out. And sometimes it's just about checkpoints. Like yeah. you want to travel to from the south of the West Bank to the north of the West Bank, or all the way around. Mm. A half hour drive could literally take you nine hours. Remember the last time I went, I was in Hebron and. We were going back up to Janine, my mom's hometown, and we were stuck at one checkpoint because Israelis decided to close it. Still, I still don't know the reason till now, but for seven hours that day. Really? When and, you were just um, stuck at that, at that yeah, one yeah. checkpoint? And it was interesting because you look around and people are just used to it. That, you know, once the checkpoint closes, people just get out of their cars, sit on the side of the road, start smoking, bring their food out. It's, <laughs> it's just like whatever, it's business as usual. They but, come prepared. Yeah. yeah, but see, the West Bank isn't the... So, you know, I'm, I hate this, like, separation we had. Because before 1940, like, 1947, it was just Palestinian. Yeah. You didn't really have mm -hmm. West Bank Palestinian, Gazan Palestinian, uh, on the, uh, Palestinians on inside inside Israel, mm -hmm. Palestinian refugees outside of Palestine. Yeah, yeah. It was just like we were one people. Now there's so much separation. Mm. So a lot of times I'd wake up and I'd say, wow, I have it so good. You know, I could be, yeah. I could be in Gaza, which is a, a prison. It's the largest prison in the world. Right now in Gaza, barely get three hours, three to four hours of electricity a day. I mean, I have friends in Gaza who always update me. They say, like, journalists, actually, who say, like, my phone's about to die. I can't contact, I can't contact the outside world. I don't know what's happening because we can't charge our phones. Uh, because we don't have electricity, the fridge is um, not running. Our food's going spoiled. And um, after the siege of Gaza, there was a count the calories um, uh, policy. Count the calories. Where, uh, okay. This is a literal quote by Israeli defense minister at the time saying, we want to count how many calories go into Gaza. So it was put under like the tightest um, uh, blockade. It was a sea blo There's a sea blockade, air blockade, and water uh, blockade, people yeah. to know. So last year in Gaza, uh, Palestinian fishermen who weren't even, were well beyond the limit they were allowed to go, um, two were shot, uh, 21 plus were shot, two were killed. And that's just for them trying to get their living, and just this, go this fishing. This was last year? So just last year in Gaza. Wow, I didn't hear anything on, on, the, on the news about that at all. And, they, and, they, were, and they, they, were out, they were out fishing? Yeah. And, the boats and they were sunk. And the limit, they were, the limit that they're given to fish yeah. is, is, is just um, it's unrealistic. There are like barely any fish at that limit. But that's, that's the blockade, that's what it does to you. It just controls you. And, um, so, you know, I sometimes wake up and I go like, well, I could have it worse, which is not a good yeah. thing to be thinking because... Um, it kind of pacifies a lot of people in the West Bank. So I kind of see it, there's like a different, different, different division. So right now there was, uh, the last couple of months, there was a great return march. It started on, the mar on March 30th. And if you're a Palestinian, it's, it's, it didn't come out of the blue. This has been going on for ages. Like Palestinians, uh, Gaza is made up of two th more than two thirds refugees. Like it's like 70% are refugees. And some of them yeah. can even see their, the villages where they've been kicked out in 1948. You can still Across, see them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Most of them, still have the keys, the original keys to their houses. Mm. My grandfather still has the key to his house. Really? Yeah, it's, it's like his most prized possession. It's the only thing he will never get rid of. And, and he'll pass it down to my father and my father pass it down to me. This is the symbol. The key, the key is the symbol yeah. of Palestinian right of return. Mm. And I want to touch more on that because that's, it all comes back to it. You know, funny enough, I went to this uh, event in Leeds Uni. It was, um, it was a speaker, an Israeli speaker. He was like a, a, a PR Israeli spokesperson, you know. Like okay. I'd call him a propaganda straight up. Because I, I went to the talk and it was just yeah. all propaganda. But it was just fun to engage with him because mm -hmm. it was so easy to like rebuke his arguments. Because yeah. it was so, 
wow, I, I were there many Palestinians in, in the audience? Just me and my it? just me and my friend just two of us, and yeah. you know we didn't really we just wanted we know, we made sure to be there just to give a counter narrative. Yeah, because it's you can't you know we won't let this stuff pass, and just in one in one of these segments he this was really interesting. He had a bunch. He had a list of things on the on the projector, and he said, "I want you to raise your hand if you think this is like the center, the the, the main the main issue of this conflict." Yeah. So he said uh, Jerusalem, and you know some people put their hands up. He said, um, "I don't know." Um, there were a bunch. I completely forgot now. But the one that stuck stuck out was the right of return of the Palestinian refugees, and the majority mm -hmm. of the the people in the room put their hands up. And we were talking. This was a JSOC event. Yeah, uh, I would say, well, I, I didn't know everyone there, but the majority there were Jewish students, and there were only two Palestinians. The two Palestinians and the majority of the Jewish students all put their hands up when he said, "Hands up if you think that right of return of refugees is like the center of the conflict." And this is because the state of Israel was, uh, you know, I wrote about it in the Nakba piece. It's the the need to expel the Palestinians mm -hmm. was at the center of establishing the uh, new state of Israel in 1948. Yeah. That was like the, the center of it. There, there had to be a Jewish majority. And of course, Israel now prides itself, calls itself a democracy. But that's the same thing you could say about Canada. I mean, when Canada ransacked a lot of its native population, mm. they were, you know, they were so quick to call themselves a proud democracy, but that's because the natives were less than 10%. Yeah. So there's no way the natives are going to, you know, reclaim the land that they lost. So it's just impossible. It's just, they have to accept their fate, and it's the same thing in in um, in, in Palestine. So when uh, Israel was established, one of the first dehumanizing things that uh, the Israelis did, so the Palestinians who remained, who are now Palestinian citizens of Israel now, yeah. one of the first things they were told was um, so like in the town of Al Lod, for example, where the massacre happened, and uh, there was like a bombing of a mosque, and uh, one of the first things that the inhabitants that remained and weren't killed, that one of the first things they were told to do was to basically clean out the corpses. And you're talking about bodies that are still warm. Mm -hmm. And over, all over Palestine, you had a couple tens of thousands dead. The Palestinians that remained were told to clean it up. So you could just imagine that first act of you having to clear out people you knew, your neighbors, your loved ones, like you had to bury them in, a ma in mass graves. And that was the, that was like the start of it. That started. Yeah. And then the pal those Palestinians who remained in Israel were living under military occupation for 19 years until 1967. So th this, uh, let me go back to the refugees thing. It's, it's, it's always at the center of it. It's because that's, that's the Israel's biggest threat is if those refugees return and their descendants. Why do you, why do you think it's, why do you think it's the biggest threat? Why, why, why do you think Israelis feel so strongly about the return of refugees? I know it's about, you know, expulsion, but I mean, you know, it, uh, the, the Israeli state is, is bigger and stronger than a few, few refugees returning. Why do you think they see that as such a threat to, to their existence? Because it would change the demographics. It would mean a Jewish minority. It would mean if they really are the democracy they proud themselves to be, those, would, those Palestinians would get the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And then that could go whatever way they want. They could make it Palestinians have, yeah. you know, go for things to go back like it was before the state of Israel. And that's like a fear they have. Yeah. And for me, really, it's, it's well, it's, it's about, that's justice. That's... Um, human, uh, UN Resolution 194, which calls for the Palestinian refugees to return, and it's enshrined in human in uh, human rights law. So, you know, whatever, whenever you have a crisis in the world that's where you have a refugee population, they're all permitted to go back once the so-called conflict is is, yeah. is solved. 
But this one is just different because that's, that's the thing. Israel needs for those Palestinians to stay expelled. And the thing is, it's not just about refugees um, outside of like Palestine, like the mandatory Palestine lines. So look at Gaza and look at the West Bank. If you get the Palestinians' population in Gaza and the West Bank and the Palestinians living inside of Israel, they make up 6.8 million people. Wow. Jewish Israelis today make up 6.5 million. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're just talking about, let's say, annexation of the West Bank and Gaza, if, if those walls are eradicated and those people are allowed to go back to their land, let's forget about the Palestinians living outside of the, the land of Palestine and Israel. That would mean a Jewish minority. So I think so. you hit on a really good point there about um, how, you know, in other situations, in other conflicts, the return of refugees uh, is, is almost, um, as an international consensus, one of the kind of primary goals of international relations. See so returning refugees to, to South Sudan and Darfur being high on the agenda. And also the UK government always talks about providing stable conditions to send refugees back to Syria, Somalia, Eritrea, namely because the government you know, is quite anti-refugee. But it's interesting how they don't carry that rhetoric to Palestinians. And why, why do you think that is? What do you think is going on there? Well, also, I just wanted to touch up on one, one is the former Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. So after the conflict that happened there, and yeah. the, you know, a lot, a lot of refugees did return. And, um, but that, that's kind of like the example I put it, because that was in Europe. Yeah. So that was like, you know, that was just, yeah, whatever, like, go back yeah. to your home. So, so why, yeah. why, why do you think that there isn't this, why do you think that there isn't this international support for Palestinians returning to a land that they've left due to conflict? That's a good question. I always ask myself that. Why, <laughs> why, why is it like the Palestinian refugee, the, the issue of the Palestinian refugee just stand, sticks out like a sore thumb? It's yeah. been 70 years and, you know, some Palestinian refugees, like uh, a lot of my family, so my dad's, my grandfather's family, like I told you, didn't all go to Jordan. Some of them fled to Syria and lived in the Yermuk camp. And they were made, second ref they were made refugees a second time after the Syri uh, Syrian yeah. civil war. And um, same thing in Iraq. You know, there was an Iraqi uh, refugee camp that was bombed. It was one of the first targets to be bombed in the 2003 war. I always ask myself that. Why? Why is it that the Palestinian refugees like forgotten about? Or there are a lot of things that come to my mind, whether it be the strength of the Israel lobby around the world, be it in the US or here in the UK, mm. that um, we're kind of told to just kind of get over it, assimilate somewhere else. Yeah. But, but it's like, just don't dream of coming back. Because mm. I'd say it always comes back to that, that, that demographic threat. Okay. It's like, um, what, what's the shift going to be like? But I told you, it doesn't, those Palestinian refugees, they don't have to come back. If it's just the dismantlement of the West Bank and uh, Gaza strip border walls and they're allowed to return yeah. that would that would be enough to create a Jewish minority and I, I, the reason why I keep going back to that is because I, I want to personally attribute it to I mean I have a lot of discussions with people and say you know they, they so-called liberal Zionists and so they say you know of course I'm, I'm all for ending the occupation but Palestinian refugees returning oh no that, that can't happen that would you know mean the end of Israel the destruction of Israel and I go why first off in my mind I used to think that they used to have this anti-Muslim prejudice or anti-Arab like our prejudice, which does yeah. exist, that we're all inherently violent and we want to go back and start yeah. killing people. And that's, even though all of us have literally been calling, all we want is just to go back home. Yeah. That's all it is. Allow us to go back to our rightful homes. It's, and speaking of UN Resolution 194, it was literally drafted for the Palestinian refugees. The first UN uh, UNRWA, UN um, Relief and Work Agencies for Refugees. That was established for the Palestinian refugees, and till this day, they're still functioning. It's, they haven't had rest or be dismantled. It was still working. Uh, 
And funny enough, one of the three conditions, um, so when Israel wanted to be a member of the United Nations, their application, UN Resolution 273, it uh, explicitly stated that the status of Jerusalem should not be altered, that Israel's borders would not be changed, and for the Palestinians to have the right to return the Palestinian re uh, refugees. That was one of the conditions that Israel said we will stick to uh, in 1949 when they applied for UN membership. So it, it does go back to that, happen. and still till now. And that's the, um, you know, that's, that's the, I guess one of the things that always get thrown out is, it's almost like a, a red flag is that you should never, ever, ever question Israel's right to exist. Yeah. That's the big one. Even though for me that's a state that was built on ethnic cleansing, yeah. of killing of Palestinians, yeah. of literally just a, an artificial demographic change, you know, I'm, I'm told, don't, don't ever question this uh, right to exist. So, so and, yeah. and do you question the right to exist? Of course. Of course. And, of course, and yeah. to, to what end? I mean, we talk about, um, you know, uh, obtaining peace in the region. Um, you, you, you're, you've been speaking to me about before the podcast about yeah. whether a two-state solution is possible. Uh, what are your personal opinions on, uh, I suppose, a peaceful resolution or just a, a resolution altogether? Well, here's the thing. Uh, I want to go back to, uh, well, I want to mention Martin Luther King. Um, okay. He gave this, uh, well, he wrote something. He said, um, he said the biggest, the biggest uh, issue he's had wasn't with the Ku Klux Klan member. It was actually with the white moderate. Those who say they want peace, but what they mean is this negative peace idea of absence of conflict instead yeah. of a positive peace, mm -hmm. which is the presence of justice. Yeah, and I, I very, very strongly believe in that because whenever I told, oh, we should, we, you know, let's just have peace. Like, what exactly do you mean by peace? Just for Palestinians to surrender and just be like, okay, we'll, we'll accept whatever scraps we have. Because right now, this two-state solution, first of all, there is no two-state solution. Not, not only is it dead, but people who keep, keep stating, oh, I just want a two-state solution to appear, you know, to appear progressive. Because, of course, if uh, most, not most, every single Israeli um, prime minister and leader some, someone like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime yeah. minister, has said, you know, under my watch, there will be no Palestinian state. So, it would, like, in Israeli politics, it's, you're such a progressive to say, you know, I want a two-state solution. But the two-state solution is dead. You're saying it's, 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 it's not progressive enough? It's, no, it's, it's, it's not even progressive to say you want a two-state solution. Okay. Because the, the two-state solution is what Israel entails. So after the Oslo Accords, they divided the West Bank into areas A, B, S, and C. Yeah. The Palestinian-controlled one is Area A, but even then, if you want to go from another, one Area A to another, you have to go through checkpoints. Mm -hmm. You have to go to, so Area C is f under full Israeli control. Whatever resource they want, whether it be water, they could just, you know, take it back to mainland Israel. Turn so, yeah. yeah, so like um, this summer, I have family in Nablus, city of Nablus in the West Bank, that sits on a big water spring, a natural water reserve. They're not allowed to dig through and get any of it. It has to go through the Israelis, then they're like kind of sold back, it. they have to pay a tax mm -hmm. for it. Just... So, so what does the, the, the one-state solution look like in your eyes? Freedom, peace for everyone, yeah. equality for everyone. Doesn't matter what your religion is, doesn't matter what your race is. Not, instead of having this ethno ethnocracy, basically, yeah. that says if you're, if you're born in, this, in, this, uh, in the right race or the right religion, yeah. that you can have all these, uh, you know, all these um, uh, rights, mm -hmm. but if you're not, you kind of have this, live in this either the second-class uh, second citizen in Israel, 
or under military occupation in the West Bank or under siege in Gaza, that's not a, that's that's unnatural. That's that should, that's that's what I mean. That should go. Yeah. So equality for everyone in the land. Doesn't yeah. matter what you are. It doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what sex you are. Doesn't matter. So would this would this yeah. the, the, this state you know would be um, the current Israeli lands and the current Palestinian lands under one one government? Would they would it be called Palestine? Would it be called Israel? Or would it be called something completely different? Honestly, to build a new future. Look, I get this question all the time, and my question is respectfully, I don't care. You don't care? Okay. I call it Israel. I don't care as long as because right now we're talking about a state that's jails uh, that imprisons uh, children higher than any rate of any other country in the world. You're talking about a state that's killing off a couple thousand people in Gaza every couple of years. Yeah. If you, under that situation, we just want that injustice to end. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, you know, we're not calling... I mean, the, the reason why I don't really like to go into two state, one state is because it's not about the resolution, it's about justice, first of all. Okay. So once we have that justice, once we have, to end, once we have the end of the occupation and the colonization, which is causing all of this, yeah. Once we can lift the siege and blockade of Gaza, once we can get the Palestinian refugees to return, then we can talk solutions. But right now being told like I should debate solutions and I should leave it to the experts and negotiators, yeah. but in the same time still live under this constant fear and a constant threat to my family and myself, mm -hmm. it's just absurd. I'm not going to engage in that. And that's actually why I'll get into it later, but the BDS movement is growing so fast. Because it's not calling on political solutions, it's just calling on... Yeah. So let's, justice, come, yeah. let's, let's start to move down that, that route and yeah. talk about some of the, the things you've been active in, in Leeds, the campaigns you've been, you've been, you've been spearheading, and also some of the kind of uh, clashes that, oh. uh, that, 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 you, that you've had on campus or that have happened within Leeds. Can you, uh, can you, you know, describe some of them? Right, well, I wasn't very active in the Palestine society. Well, I always was in myself. You know, I was okay. very active. I was yeah. very, I mean, I've been reading and just being... Uh, going to all these different events and talks and debates and being always aware sure. and but i think the biggest one for me is connecting with people back in palestine that's like how i stayed up to date but you know so this year i joined the palestine society as a secretary a friend of mine told me hey you should be you'd be really good for this and i was like you know what why not and i'm so glad i did because i just jumped in and i realized that wow it's 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 quite bad and by bad i mean palestinians on campuses around the world, but especially in Western countries like the UK and the US. Our universities are complicit in a lot of Israeli war crimes. How so? Through investments, through, okay. uh, through uh, uh, research partnerships and research grants with uh, Israeli institutes like Technion, which uh, Technion is an institute in Israel that um, is basically the laboratory for Elbit Systems, other weapons companies to test out their weapons before they're dropped in Gaza. And Elbit Systems, let me go back to that uh, company. Mm -hmm. Elbit Systems is a prime Israeli uh, arms company that literally marketed the weapons as battle-tested after the 2014 massacre in Gaza. So they're literally using Gaza as like, their, their, their weapons, uh, weapons like testing, testing facility. Yeah. And it's, making, it's profiting. It's, it's making, you know, getting all these profits. Mm -hmm. And you have universities here in the UK that are invested in Elbit Systems or have research grants with... Technion or with the uh, Wiseman Institute in Israel that uh, um, also develops uh, weapons and so you, you have Palestinians on campus who literally have to go to university when their tuition money is being invested in weapons companies or Israeli companies or even you know it's, it's this complicity is um, it's like to me it's, it's, it's absurd it's uh, yeah. so you're, you're, you're 
I mean, UK government subsidised tuition fee pounds are going directly to support Israeli companies that are testing weapons on if, Palestinians if, trapped in Gaza. If your university's invested, yeah, like if look at, um, say the biggest one is uh, Manchester, Cambridge, they have the big, big uh, divestment campaign. So in Manchester, yeah. their, their university is invested in Caterpillar, which um, supplies Israeli army with the D9 bulldozers, which are not like your typical bulldozer, they're massive, they're armoured. Yeah. Their blade demolishes houses just in a straight run-through. Mm -hmm. uh, the D9 bulldozer crushed the body of Rachel Corey, that was an international solidarity movement activist in Gaza. She was basically standing in front of a bulldozer to stop it from demolishing a Palestinian family's house. And the bulldozer just ran her through. So you, um, that was like their biggest campaign, but now these divestment campaigns are growing so big, yeah, so there's, large. There's right? even one at my university. I don't think okay. it's been tied specifically to um, Israel and Israeli armed forces, but there's definitely, it's called invest and divest, mm. or yeah. like a socially responsible of course. investment of funds. Yeah, even BA Systems is a big target around campuses. So yeah. Cambridge, right now, there are 40, 40 societies in Cambridge University signed on to call the university to divest from BA Systems and Caterpillar. And BA Systems also took part in weapons uh, developments in the 2014 onslaught on Gaza. Okay. Um, so yeah, this, like our university, I've been digging up, I've been I've been following it through, it's, it's, it's trickier because some universities know the tricks, they know how to kind of hide it better, some, yeah. you know, it's all through Freedom Information Act, I would mm -hmm. say, it's like, that's how a movement grows, but it grows so, right, so I don't know if you've heard recently, mm -hmm. the Argentina football team cancelled their, their game in Jerusalem, yeah. which was a big win for the BDS movement, Shakira last week cancelled her a gig in Tel Aviv, um, you've had a lot of artists over the years, cancel their gigs or straight up say I, I won't I refuse to play in Israel like uh, Lord was a big one last year you've had uh, American artists like Snoop Dogg you've had um, the biggest ones Roger Waters that sees that he was like a campaigner I would say I'd say um, and all this builds up to, to show people that like this brand Israel that all this like PR that they're investing in yeah. to be uh, act like this normal Western state is not working mm -hmm. because as long as they maintain the system of occupation and colonization then they can't be expected to be treated yeah. Normal as a different, uh, as just another Western country, you know what I yeah. mean? Um, but the reason why this BDS movement is uh, growing so fast is because people, especially the Palestinians on the ground, who have been, you know, feeling helpless. BDS was called for by Palestinians. So what, when people. What does BDS stand for? Boycott, divestment, sanctions. Okay. Calls for the boycott of Israeli products and goods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, divestment from any funds into Israel and eventually S is the last one because for uh, governments around the world to sanction Israel. Yeah. Um, BDS started from the ground up. It's a grassroots movement. It started with Palestinians. 170 Palestinian civil rights groups, um, sorry, civil um, society groups started, called on the world to boycott Israel. So when people tell you, oh, why, why do you just boycott Israel? Why don't you boycott all X, Y, and Z? Well, first of all, there's no official roster of what, um, you know, what human rights cause we, you want to choose, number yeah. one. And two, the Palestinians explicitly called for this. And it works. It actually works. Every time, it's, it's not just a monetary hit. Because, you know, the U.S. is supplied by, with $3.4 billion in USA every year. Yeah. So I wouldn't say the money is the, the worst part. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's the brand. That's when you need to focus okay. on the brand. Same thing with South yeah. Africa. It's when people refuse to see this country as normal. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what's, what's going to matter and the reason why BDS is so popular is because people want to do something, people genuinely want to do something and you know before we're told oh 
this isn't this isn't your fight. Let let yeah. the negotiators talk. Mm -hmm. But now any person can engage in it. Yeah. You can go out and campaign for it. You can take a pledge and say I refuse to, you know, purchase any Israeli goods. I I, I take a pledge to every time I see an Israeli product, I bring it up and say that this is outrageous. Yeah. Um, and that really changes the perception and it has been growing so fast recently. Okay. You've had groups here in the UK who weren't mm -hmm. big into BDS just last year who are the biggest campaigners on BDS right now. And I say, yeah, because it doesn't, BDS doesn't call for solutions or political arrangements. It literally calls for three things. Ending of the occupation, yeah. equal rights for all Palestinians, even the ones living in Israel, and the right to return to ref of refugees. Okay. Once we have that, then we can say whatever, negotiating table. Well, I mean, I think that's yeah. quite powerful because yeah. I would say, before talking to you, I'd say some of the, the, the weakness around the BDS rhetoric has been, you know, ending apartheid, that was a clear goal, right? Mm. It, was end, it was just, you know, let, let's end apartheid, and that's quite a simple thing that everyone can get behind. However, the Israeli-Palestine situation is a lot more nuanced, and it's a lot more, uh, it's a lot more difficult to untangle. You know, some people on, on the other side of the debate may say, oh yeah, but you guys just want the death of Israel and the destruction of, you know, even people who you say, you know, Palestinians want the destruction of the, the Jewish race. But actually you've just sat here and said level-headedly, you know, I just want people to, you know, not be so oppressed, people to be able to return to their own homes where they still have the key, for people to be able to live normal lives, be it in Palestine, Israel, just wherever they, you know, choose to reside. That's literally every Palestinian I've met my whole life, that's all they wanted. Mm -hmm. And this whole idea, I mean, some, some people on the other side, they know that, you know, they're not as prejudiced, they know that, you know, Palestinians aren't this inherently violent race, yeah. but they still say, oh, it will be the destruction of Israel, because as I told you, the demographic change yeah. of population, the percentages, that's, I mean, that's, a, that's a big one. So it's, it's not necessarily like a racist thing where it's like all Palestinians want to kill, it's just that change, that uncomfortableness, that... That, some people see that as, you know, that cannot happen. Yeah. That's under no circumstances. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely yeah. a, a campaign of dehumanization of, of Palestinians happening around the world. Um, I remember seeing you know, how different countries have um, published the, you know, the, the recent news of the, the killings on the border of, mm -hmm. of Gaza. And, and, and I remember there was, I think it was Fox News in, in America was saying, you know, uh, Israeli forces have been defending against, um, you know, Pal Hamas terrorists who are, you know, throwing stones and missiles at, yeah. at, at, at Israelis. Um, but I think, you know, what's good talking to you is you're kind of demystifying that, I hope, thing. And what are the other kind of um, common misconceptions that you think people have about Palestine and Palestinians in general? Let me start with um, just the history before Zionism or just okay. during Zionism. Palestinians own Palestine. Mm -hmm. Palestinians didn't claim Palestine because a lot of people think this is, oh, these people are just fighting over this piece of land. And it's not like, it's not like, Israelis came and Palestinians came and decided to share it and they, they had a conflict, an argument over sharing. No, Palestinians owned Palestine. You had these kibbutzes that were emerging and the Jewish National Fund was purchasing land in Palestine. And then at, at, in 1948, it was about 30% of the population was Jewish at the time, after mm -hmm. the mass Jewish immigrations from Europe. Yeah. And they were expected to be given 55% of the land, including most of the Mediterranean coasts, and the Palestinians to be okay with it. Uh, so that's that's a big one. So if you if, don't don't think of it as this is just people having an argument. This is the Palestinians own this land and were kicked off of it, yeah. and are still not be able to return. And even the ones that still exist in the West Bank, for example, Israel arrests and, um, and uh, children more than uh, rates so high that ninety nine point seven four percent 
of children that are arrested in Palestine are convicted. 54% wow. are denied toilet access, mm. more than 70% are uh, verbally um, abused and threatened with sexual assault, 75% are physically beaten, 97% uh, have their hands and feet tied up on interrogation, and all of them have to sign paper, interrogation papers in Hebrew, a language which mm. they don't understand. And these are children, so if, if the children yeah. are treated this way, yeah. that just gives you an idea of how the occupation is like. And this whole two-state thing, that's another misconception, because it's so easy for people to want to wash their hands off and saying, you know, I call on both sides to just peace together. It's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's not as if that one side colonizes, one side imprisons, one side demolishes homes, schools, livestock, one side ethnically cleansed. So it's just absurd to say I want both sides to come back to the negotiating table. First off, the negotiating table does not exist. There's nothing to negotiate. After the Oslo Accords, everything the Palestinians were given, even though the Palestinians uh, accepted Israel, they literally um, accepted Israel's right to exist in 1988, mm -hmm. even though Israel never ever uh, recognized Palestine. So Palestine, or the Palestinian Authority, recognized Israel, but the vice versa didn't happen. But even then, everything we were given were basically little bantu stands and how to decorate our own prison cells, as Nuarekat would call it. So it's not really freedom. It's not like you have this piece of plot of land. It's you have these tiny plots and just decorate them however you want. If you want to leave, you're still under occupation. And I, I'm just against this two-state thing because West Bank, these borders of the West Bank, they're not natural borders. Yeah. They were literally a ceasefire line. That's mm. it's a ceasefire line. You can't expect a full country to be given this. This this is your land. This is not Palestine for me. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying call the whole, whole thing Palestine, but if my grandfather can go back to Yaffa, that's, that's, that's justice for me. Okay. And to be able to live there just as he was before 1948, with prosperity, with equal rights, that's what, that's what it's all about. And so people, especially liberal Zionists, who always say, yeah, but I want a two-state. What I'm hearing is it's just an excuse to not actually take that take, take stance. Because yeah. that's, you know, we hear it from world leaders all the time. They're, they're visibly distressed of what's happening in Palestine. Mm -hmm. They know what's happening is that the Palestinians, especially in Gaza, are being massacred disproportionately. But it's always, I call on both sides, because that's just the easy thing to yeah. say. It, it's so easy to say, I want a two-state, to just kind of wash your hands off yeah. actually doing anything and taking any concrete action to... Uh, and what would you say to, you know, Palestinians who call for a two-state solution? Well, Palestinians who still call for a two-state solution, as far as I know, are mainly older people. My generation okay. stuff, just no, it's it's it's, it's all okay. a sham. And even if you go much older, yeah. as in my grandfather's generation, dude, if you ask them two states, one state, they just laugh at you. They say, "Look, I just want to go home." Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This whole two state thing is just for Palestinians to say, at least I have something mm -hmm. to stick to, to, yeah. to put my name on and stuff. It's 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 the 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 harder, more courageous thing would be to get rid of this idea that. Yeah, there might, we might not have something called Palestine, but at least we get the justice, peace, and equality that we deserve, and we've been calling for for a while. And that's what I would say, really. Uh, but as far as I know, people my age, there are barely any two-staters. Because yeah. we know that it's been dead, or it's been a sham in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, Isaac Rabin, he was given a Nobel Peace Prize, but he's the same one who said, I want to see Gaza drown in the sea. He's the same one in the first Intifada, the first Palestinian uprising, who uh, made the break-their-bones policy where soldiers were literally caught on camera, pinning down children and just breaking their limbs, as uh, this was his orders. And this guy still got a peace, Nobel Peace Prize because the world 
just loves to see this. Like, oh, look at them. They're coming together. They're, they're finally, yeah. looks like we're finally going to get something out of it. Mm. But even then, all we got was scraps. Yeah. Until this then, till this day, actually, after the Oslo peace process, Israel has been building settlements at a faster rate as they ever were. And I, oh, I want to bring it back to people who say, oh, it's just the Netanyahu government, this right-wing government that's going on right now. First off, Netanyahu in Israel right now is kind of like a center-right. He's not even far-right. And the most liberal Israeli government, even the most liberal labor Israeli government, have still built settlements, have still colonized, have still yeah. denied the UN resolutions that they should have kept up. So that's what I want to really say. It's... it's you can't just rely yeah. on, a, on, a ch on a change in, in Israeli government. It will still, it won't lead to the freedom of your, you know, the Palestinian who are exactly. oppressed. Exactly. And why should we kind of, de de instead of demanding our liberation from our oppressor, why should we kind of wait until they finally come to their yeah. senses? That's yeah. not going to happen soon. So, so yeah. yeah, so my, I guess my, my, my final question, we've talked about the differences in generations and how they view the solutions to the conflict. Um, do you think that people your age, young people of today, do you think they stand a better chance than the previous generation of finding peace, or are they just going to deepen divides? No, oh, 100% better chance. Okay. And I would say it's all thanks to the, the miracle of the BDS campaign, the BDS right. movement. Because now Palestinian, young Palestinians my age, I know I travel the country, I go to different conferences, yeah. I meet different groups and different organizations, it's all in Palestinian youth. And BDS is something they're always behind. Especially now, it's growing so fast because back then, if you're a young Palestinian, you can't really. I mean, you can talk about Palestine, you can make sure Palestine is brought up. Well, we've been doing that for decades now, but final direct, like like actual direct action that says no more. You know, we're not going to treat you normally, and we're going to campaign against you. Yeah, this is something new with this BDS movement that's growing so fast. So. I would say, yeah, now they have better tools than ever, than ever before. Because, you know, my, my father's generation, for example, it was, you know, he, he was a Palestine campaigner, but it was always like about, you know, we still do it, dance and song, and raising that, like, feeling of Palestine in your heart, even though you're living far away. Yeah. And, of course, they had it hard back then, because in some certain countries, you can't talk about Palestine. You actually cannot talk about it. You could get in trouble just for mentioning it. So, right now, we have the greatest tools, and, you know, the BDS campaign is going so fast. I mean, just this year. You had Dublin City Council pass the BDS motion. You had Barcelona, really? Barcelona, the biggest city yeah. to pass BDS. Wow. Um, and you've had different, um, in the US, you've had some counties pass the BDS motion. Mm -hmm. You've had also more Irish towns and city councils pass it. But yeah. Barcelona was the big one, the, the wow. one that was just yeah. wow. So, so this is all in one year. This yeah. is not even, it's not, it hasn't been like five months mm -hmm. this year. Yeah. So you could imagine what it has now, and especially after the recent um, massacre in Gaza, in the Great Return March, BDS started going on because people want to do something and we tell them, hey, you know, yeah. support this movement. And, yeah, so yeah. I'm really glad. I think that's where the point, point will kind of end it. And, yeah. and, you know, I suppose I'd like to reiterate before, before we finish um, that, you know, the BDS movement isn't something, isn't uh, an, an anti-Semitic movement to punish Jewish people. It's not to, to punish Israel. It's, uh, you know, exactly the same as it was in, in, in you know, in the apartheid. It's trying to damage the brand of Israel as a normal state that doesn't kind of continually carry out this oppression and, uh, you know, constantly on, on Palestinians. And, it, it, you know, it doesn't have to involve a two-state solution. It doesn't have to involve the destruction of the Israeli state. It's just about getting Palestinian people 
um, the human rights that, you know, as humans, they are more than entitled to. And I want to say one last final point is it's absurd to even call it anti-Semitic. It is literally whatever Palestinians do. It's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. It is the biggest Palestinian movement, organized movement that is peaceful, non-violent. Oh, BDS has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize this year. We'll find out at the end of the year. Wow. It is finally a Nobel Peace Prize nominated mm -hmm. movement. So Palestinians come out with non-violence, and yet we're still we're still told we're vicious and we're 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 hateful. And it's like, damn if you do, damn if you don't. What are we? What are we supposed to do? I don't, I don't think you're we... hateful. I don't yeah. think you're vicious. <laughs> I, I don't think you're violent. Okay, uh, Yusuf, <laughs> thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Tim. Appreciate it. Thanks everyone for watching and listening the second ever episode of Tim Talks. I hope you enjoyed it and took something from the from today's interview. Thank you very much for watching. Tell the people what you're here for.